so my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and um, uh, so this, this year, really this, this, basically this whole year, we have been um, working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, this, week's, uh, this week's chapter uh, that, that we get to, it, um, in some ways it reminds me of 12th grade English class when I read Shakespeare. Any of you read Shakespeare? Any of you like Shakespeare? Okay, I'm really sorry for what I'm about to say. <laughs> Shakespeare really confused me. <laughs> um, and now the, the, the teacher would, and you know, the teacher, we'd, we'd go through and we'd, we'd unpack it and I'd be like, oh, okay, like, so now I understand what in the world that sonnet was talking about. I, now I understand what Hamlet's soliloquy was about. But reading it for homework, I was like, I have no idea what like, this dude is saying. Um, and it took the teacher kind of unpacking it for, it for it to become clear. Uh, and, you know, sometimes when we come to the Bible, um, it can be kind of like that. It can be, there can be some challenging parts in the Bible where, where, where you read it, like maybe you're having your devotional time and you read it and you're like, what the heck? Like, what in the world? <laughs> like, I, I don't understand what is going on here. Like, what's this story about? What is, like, what, what is this, this person talking about? Um, and so we, we can have passages in the Bible that, that are challenging. And, you know, I, I use that word challenging because there's really, when, when it comes to the Bible, there's two ways that a passage can be challenging. Um, the first is, is that we come to this book and it can challenge our sensibilities. It can challenge our values. It can even challenge our beliefs. And when that's the case, I say, man, bring it on. <laughs> Bring it on, because because we, we believe here that this is God's perfect word to us, spoken through human authors, but preserved for us to know God's thoughts after him. And he's, he is bigger than me, and he is smarter than me, and so he is going to say stuff that's going to push back against me. Uh, and and so and it makes sense if this really is God's word, you wouldn't like I wouldn't find it to line up with every you know with me and everything I have already thought and believed. Uh, if it really is God's word, we'd find it pushing back against us and against our culture, against every culture in certain areas, affirming and rebuking us. And that's and that is certainly the case with today's text. Is that we're going to find it pushing back against some of our sensibilities. Um, but then there, there's another way that Bible passages can be challenging, and that's like Shakespeare. Sometimes they can just be hard to decipher and hard to understand what's going on. And sometimes the Apostle Paul, God love him, can be like Shakespeare. Uh, my wife Sarah and I kind of joke about this all the time. I, I really like Paul because I kind of get his logical, his, his strange combination of a logical way of thinking and what obviously must be some diagno undiagnosed ADHD because he'll just like bounce around from topic to topic and then bring it back all together. And I, I love it. Uh, and, Sa and Sarah's like lost when she tries to like read Romans. Um, but it, it's, it's funny because apparently, you know, Sarah being, you know, struggling to read and follow Paul's train of thought is not the only one. Actually, in the Bible, uh, Peter, the, the apostle Peter uh, himself actually talks about this issue in one of his letters. This is one of the, like, f I, I think it's the kind of fun little insight into, like, what, what must the, like, the apostles have, like, joked, joked about. In, in, 2, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, 
Yeah, so 2 Peter chapter 3, here's what, here's what Paul, what Peter, the apostle Peter says about Paul. He's like, he's like our beloved brother Paul, God love him. He, he, wrote, like, he wrote to you too, according to the wisdom God gave him, as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, <laughs> which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. A couple really interesting things here. I just, in this text, even before we get to where we are in 1 Corinthians, I, I just love that Peter's kind of gently ribbing on Paul in sort of a, a loving way. Like, and, and, you can almost, and you can almost imagine Peter. because If you've read the gospel accounts of Jesus' ministry, and Peter f- features prominently in those, Peter is the fisherman. He's kind of, he's got a, a big mouth and a big heart that sometimes are bigger than his brain. <laughs> And he gets himself into trouble. And as you can almost just imagine Peter saying to Paul, he's like, man, I love you, man. But like sometimes your sentences just go on and on and on until my eyes glaze over. Can you like just dumb it down for the fisherman in the back, please? <laughs> that's kind of what he's saying here. It's like sometimes Paul's letters are hard to understand. And so that makes me feel a little bit better. Makes Sarah feel a little bit better. When we come to Paul, come to a challenging passage uh, that, because if Peter felt that way, uh, Peter, you know, the rock on whom Christ built his church. If Peter felt that way, then I think, I guess I'm in good company. But something else that Peter, that, that Peter says here, he says, you know, some things in these complicated letters, people twist as they do the other scriptures. Do, do you hear that? Peter, Peter views Paul's letters as scripture. An astonishing thing for for a a Jew who has the Old Testament to say. What a high view. And the view that that we hold that this whole book is the Bible, is God's word. You have that out of the mouth of Peter. Peter, this is scripture, the very words of God. Peter said just at the beginning of of this particular letter that he says all scripture is, is, is not just coming out of the author's own thoughts, but it's Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now he says, and Paul, Paul is doing that. He, he, this is not just his own thoughts. These are God's thoughts. And Paul said to his, in his letter to Timothy, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. And so even when we come to a challenging text, a text that challenges us or maybe is just hard to understand or maybe both, Challenging passages are breathed out by God and useful. And so, let's press in to know this book, to to understand hard things in this book. Because challenging passages are precious because they're God's word. God's word, the one who spoke the universe into existence, has spoken to us. Now, there's also, in what Peter says here, a, a warning about these challenging passages. He says, the ignorant and unstable twist them to their destruction. Because, you see, Peter, Peter understood that it's far too easy, it's all too easy to, to take challenging passages and twist them to be something more palatable. Uh, and, to, and in doing so, to, to go wrong. Uh, and if that's what... 
that's what cults and conspiracy theories do, is they take something that's a challenging verse, a verse where you're like scratching, what does this mean? And they say, ah, this is what that means. And then they construct a whole theology, a whole worldview around that kind of obscure verse. They, they, they take a particular interpretation of a hard text and use it to interpret everything when really it should be the other way around. So one of the things we're going to do today as we walk through a challenging passage, rather than taking this hard passage and figuring out what the rest of the Bible says, let's take the rest of the Bible and figure out what the hard passage means. That's what, that's what humility and wisdom does when it approaches a, a, a difficult-to-understand thing. It says, okay, where else does the Bible talk about this that I, that I do understand, and can I bring that in to help shed some light on this? So use easy passages to interpret hard passages not the other way around. So we now come to 1 Corinthians 11. In chapter 11, you know, Paul is addressing, has been addressing issues in this, in this really messed up Corinthian church, and, he, uh, and he's answered some questions. He's going to answer more questions, and he takes up this issue of something that's going on in their church um, with women and head coverings and all sorts of stuff, and he gives them some instructions and it's really hard to follow exactly what Paul means here. This is, and so this is a challenging text in both ways that we can use that word, is that it's going to push back on some of our modern sensibilities, and it's going to be difficult to track with what Paul is saying. So what I'd like to do is I, I'd like to read these 16 verses that we're going to look at today, and then go back and, and really just say, okay, what, what, are the, what are the hard things to understand here? And what are some of the takeaways that we can have from this, from this text? Basically, I, I want to model almost of how to walk through a challenging text like that. What are some of the difficulties in understanding this text? And what are the takeaways? So, here's, so this is 1 Corinthians 11, starting, starting in verse 2. Paul, Paul writes, this is God's word to, this, to the Corinthian church and to us. He says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand. So right there he says, he's like, good job, guys, but, and I think he wants to fill in a little bit more explanation, understanding, or maybe he's concerned they're going off base here. He says, so, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who, pr who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, sorry, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it's the same as if her head was shaven. So already you're like, what now? <laughs> for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. And all the women were like, what now? <laughs> for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Okay, Paul. <laughs> Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her hair uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that a man, if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What in the world, Paul, are you talking about? <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I laugh and, and we joke, but at the, at the same time, hold this. This is God's word to us. I want to know what it means, and I want to obey it. Spirit, help us here, because... Paul says some things that on the surface you're like, whoa, whoa, hold on, storm out of the building. Or is it like, whoa, am I really wrong here in how I think about this? And then he says some things that are just really confusing. So, so I, I, that's the text. Paul, Paul spends an inordinate amount of time on this issue of hair covering and hair and how to pray wives and husbands. And, and so what's going on here? And I think to, to see that, I think we first need to, to dig into what are some of the difficulties in understanding this. Uh, because there are a couple really challenging interpretation things here. Um, and the first, um, the, the first is, is this. This challenge is, on the, the next slide here, is what, what is Paul saying um, about women? What, what, what is Paul saying about, about women here? Because he's talking about this necessity of, of wives covering, covering their heads and praying in a certain way. And he's talking about you know, the, the length of their hair being, um, you know, being honorable or dishonorable. And so the, the question that, that really should just like right away is I remember I said there's two different kinds of challenge. One is that is God's word challenging my sensibilities, and the other is it's challenging to understand. The question is, which one is, is this here? Is, is it ladies, like if you have short hair, are you in sin right now? Or is this just a challenge to understand what he's saying? Or is there some of both? That's, that's the first difficulty here of what exactly, Paul, are you saying about women and the nature of women? The second one, the second, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this difficulty, is, is, I can go to the next slide here, is what is the meaning of this head coverings that Paul's going on about? What, what's, what's the purpose here? Because he says, he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So he's like, so wives, when you come to church, wear a head covering. And so the difficulty is, what exactly is the concern here about head coverings? Because it's obvious, Paul is obviously referring to some cultural practice. Uh, but what exactly the meaning of that practice is, is, is very unclear. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of sources of, you know, when, in archaeology and history and, and, and other you know, literature stuff to help us understand the context in which the Bible was written. We can learn a lot about the first century and what life was like. And sometimes those are really helpful in, in saying, oh, okay, this is what's going on in the Bible. 
this is one of those places where even there there's a lot of disagreement about what, what is even the context into which Paul is speaking. Uh, and Because if you read five different commentaries, you're going to get five different answers on why in the first century head coverings were important. Um, and unfortunately, where you come down on what you think that cultural context outside of the Bible is, is going gonna, is gonna to influence how you read this. And so, so uh, three possibilities here. There, there's, there's three at least main possibilities of what Paul is, is trying to address here. The first possibility is that for, for women in first century Corinth, uncovered hair was how prostitutes dressed. Uh, it was a sign of sexual promiscuity and availability. And so Paul, and so in, in this sort of view of, I think that's what's going on here, Paul is simply saying, hey, dress modestly, especially like when you come to church. <laughs> and in verse 14, when he says, when he says, does not nature teach you if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace, and, but a woman's long hair is her glory? He, he probably means nature there in the sense of your natural sense of what's appropriate for men and women. That, that, that's what the ESV study Bible's take on it is is, is, is Paul is not commenting on some like fundamental gender difference. He's just saying like, what, what's appropriate, like you, you know naturally what's appropriate for men and women. So he's like, do that, be appropriate, especially when you come to church. And so that's, that's possible. That's possibly one of the things with head coverings that he's going on about. Another possibility is that in the first century, wearing a head covering or shawl was a sign that a woman was married. And so in this view, Paul is saying, hey, hey wives, you're, you're married, act, act like it. Let, let the way that you dress match the posture of your heart towards your husband and towards God. So may, that might be what's going on here. Uh, and that, that certainly does seem to resonate a little bit with how Paul is talking about husbands and wives here. And a, a third possibility, and this, this one seems to me to at least be a, a, at least some of what's going on in this text, and perha perhaps it's all three to some extent. But a third possibility is that in this first century culture, covering or uncovering your head, depending on if you're a man or a woman, was a sign of respect and deference and submission. And it was a practice that differed between men and women. And now th that particular take on it actually is a little bit maybe easier for us to track with because, because we've actually got some parallels to that in our own culture. Uh, if you've ever been to a baseball game, you know, the, you know it's the, the announcer says, everyone stand, gentlemen, remove your hats for the playing of our national anthem. Why, why is that? Have you ever thought about that? That's kind of a weird, like, a, a weird thing. What does that have to do with anything? It's because in our culture, in some context at least, taking off your hat is a sign of respect and deference. But the thing is, um, that's, that really is, the taking off your hat or not taking off your hat, really is obviously just a cultural thing that differs from culture to culture and place, place to place. And, and so let, let me just give you an example of, of the opposite of this. And it's interesting because the opposite is right here in the text. Paul here, he's primarily talking to Gentile Christians, these non-Jewish Christians in Corinth, and he's saying, hey men, take your hat off when you pray. 
But Paul, as a Jew, probably had the exact opposite cultural practice. So you know yarmulkes, which some which some uh, some evidence to suggest that this practice goes all the way back to Bible to New Testament times and before, is in in Jewish culture and Jewish faith, practicing Jewish men wear a yarmulke at least in some contexts, and the purpose of putting on that little hat is exactly the same meaning as taking off your hat at the baseball game. Right? It's, a, it's a sign of respect and deference, submission to God. It, it's how you demonstrate I'm submitting to God. So, so which is it? Is it hat off, like Paul says at the baseball game, or is it hat on, like Paul does when he goes to temple? And so which, which interpretation is right here will lead you in three completely different directions of interpreting this text. So which one is right? Or, or maybe is it all of them to some extent? I don't know. I don't know. Unfortunately, my 12th grade English teacher was better at teaching Shakespeare than I am at teaching 1 Corinthians 11 because I don't know. But frankly, the scholars don't know either. None of the commentaries know. And so that, that might seem like an unsatisfying answer. Uh, but the reason I'm leaving us with some ambiguity here is for two reasons. Is one is I, I, I actually I want to model how to approach a hard text because because hopefully if you come at if you come to the Bible with some humility and saying God give me wisdom Spirit search me out confront me but help me understand if we come to the Bible with humility there might be some places where it's going to take us a little longer. Where it's not just going to be like, oh, boom, I, I got this, no problem. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't work like that. Life doesn't work like that. So when we come to a hard text where I don't know what it means and the scholars don't know what it means, humility says, whatever I think is going on here, I got to hold with some open hands because I may very well be wrong. And so that, that's one reason. I just kind of, like, sometimes we got to do that. And the second, the second reason that I want to leave us with that ambiguity is because we are committed here at this church to the preaching of God's word. And we're committed to this pulpit being where God's word is proclaimed with authority. Where you, can, where, where you can listen to this message and follow along in the text and know this is what God wants from my life. Thus says the Lord. That, and that, that's just a, a foundational commitment that we have here. But that means that I or whoever is up here has this really sober task of making sure that what I say lines up with what God says and doesn't go so that I, I can't be silent where God speaks because then I would be unfaithful and I also can't speak where I'm not sure God is speaking because that can lead astray. And so there are times and you've probably heard it in things that anybody up here has said. There are times when it's like, we're really not sure this is it. And you, you'll hear us express that ambiguity 
because we are committed to when, when we say this is, this is what God says to us, we really want to know this is what God says to us. And so, so my, my, my hope is in leaving us with the ambiguity here of saying, I'm not sure which one of this is, that, that sort of counterintuitively that might actually strengthen your trust in the preaching and in God's word to, to know that like, we're really committed to that. And if I don't know, I'm going to say it. <laughs> I don't know. And so, so that's one of the, one of the challenges is, is, how is, is what is this cultural context? What's the deal with head coverings? A third challenge, third challenge that might be a, a little harder to see at first is, is uh, next slide here, is how, how exactly is Paul using the word head? If, you, if you've read along, you, it's like head this, head that, uncover a head, cover the head, hair grown on the head. You know, this is a, a big deal to him. Uh, and, because, and the challenge here is that this whole paragraph really is an extended word play on the Greek word for head. Uh, in, in Greek, the word for head has three meanings. It, one is literal and two are metaphorical. And it's actually, it's actually sort of similar in English. In English, of, you know, one meaning of course is just your, your literal noggin. And when Paul is talking about praying with your head uncovered, obviously that, that's what he means. Cover it up or not cover it up. But there are two metaphorical uses. One is that head can sort of mean source, like how we might refer to the headwaters of a river. And the other metaphorical use of head means authority, like a president is the head of state. So we, we use, have both of these usages in English, and in Greek, those usages are all interchangeable and can overlap and stuff. And Paul, in this passage, it's clear when you're trying to track with him that he's shifting back and forth between the literal and the metaphorical, and even what metaphor he's using is not always entirely clear. So like, like in, in verse 4, when he says, every man who prays with his head uncovered uh, or covered, rather. Every man who prays with his head covered dishonors his head. He means that praying with your literal head covered dishonors your metaphorical head. Source, authority, whichever metaphor he's using. The challenge is, which metaphor is he using? Because in verse 8, you see, if you look in verse 8 there on the screen, um, he seems to be talking more about source. He's using this picture of woman came from man, Eve was made from Adam, and so in that one sense, Adam is the, the head, the source of humanity. And, he's, and Paul seems to put some weight on this creation order, that it was Adam first and then Eve. But in verse 13, the issue of head covering seems to be one of authority, and he even uses the word authority there to make clear what he's talking about. And in verse 3, which we'll come back to, when he's talking about you know, the, the, head, the, the head of man, head of woman, head of Christ, the, the issue there seems to be one of, of authority. It seems like Paul is talking about authority there. And so, again, if you pick one or the other, you're going to end up in very different places. If you try to synthesize both, which, again, it seems like that was Paul, that's what Paul is doing, it just becomes challenging to... to trace his flow of thought. And so you have these, these difficulties in this text of, of how exactly is Paul talking about women, what exactly is this issue with head coverings, and, and even more basic than that, Paul, even how are you using that word head? Like, what, like what exactly do you mean? And so 
can try to navigate this the best that we can. And in a minute here, I'm going to give us a couple things of, okay, here's some things that are clear and maybe even surprising from this text. But if I was to try to, to synthesize Paul's argument, kind of peering through these difficulties, um, he, here's, here's I, I think, what I'd say, and I actually have it here on the next, the next slide, is that, is that Paul uses the creation order of like man first, then, then woman, to illustrate God's intention for roles of authority and submission between husbands and wives, and he references this cultural practice of head coverings to make his point. That's what I think is going on here, is that Paul uses this idea of Adam was created first, then Eve, to, to make a larger point about roles in marriage and the head covering thing is sort, of, is sort of secondary to that primary point. It's the illustration, it's the application of that primary point. And so you might say, well, what in the world does that have to do with us? <laughs> in our 21st century context where head coverings, I don't know, maybe baseball games mean something similar, but in other contexts don't appear to have any correlation to what Paul is talking about. Well, here's, here's some of what we can know. And I think there are some really helpful, insightful, worldview-altering even things in this text for us. And as we go through this, one of the things I'm going to do is, like I said at the beginning, I want to use what, what's clear in the Bible to help us sometimes in places like this where the Bible isn't clear. First... And this might be, on, on first read-through, you might not think this is what's going on here. The equality of men and women. The equality of men and women. Let me show you how Paul bases his argument here. In verse 3, when he, when he says, but this, guys, is what I really want you to know. He gives us this picture. He says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. He gives us this picture of marriage in which the relationship between a wife and her husband mirrors the relationship between Christ and God the Father. And this is where our understanding of the Trinity can, can help us, can really help us. Because let's think through this. Is Jesus equal to the Father? Yes. In fact, last week's message that Jesus is, in fact, Yahweh in the flesh. He's the God of the burning bush. He is the one speaking in the Old Testament. Jesus is equal to the Father. He is equal in glory. He is equal in power, equal in authority, equal in dignity and worth and essence and being. He says, he says to his disciples, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Everything, in, everything that the Father does, Jesus does. He's the, he's the exact representation of his glory. Everything the Father is, Jesus is 100% equally. Which, again, like we saw last week, should just take our breath away. This is the God we worship. And yet, in that everlasting relationship of love and equality and unity in the Trinity... Jesus, who is equal with God, says, I delight to do my Father's will. 
He says, not my will, but yours be done. He says, I always do what pleases him. Jesus delights to submit to his father. Not Again, not because he's lesser, not because of any inferiority or any sort of ontological difference, but simply because Jesus loves to take that role. He loves his father and says, I want to do whatever pleases you. And so Paul is saying, that's the picture of headship and submission I'm talking about in marriage. Men and women equal in essence, equal in being, equal in dignity and worth and authority and glory, yet in this covenant of marriage, saying we join that Trinitarian dance that has been going on since before the foundation of the world, this dance of headship and submission. And it's the Father and the Son saying, come on into this. This is good. And, you know, this is... This is a really helpful picture because another picture in the New Testament of marriage, which is also really helpful, is the image of the wife is like the church and the husband is like Christ. It's Ephesians 5, wives submit to your husbands like the church submits to Christ and husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that's, again, this beautiful picture of the gospel lived out, this dance But I'm glad that's not the only picture we have because that could perhaps leave you with the impression that wives are somehow down here and husbands are somehow up here because it's it's Jesus and the church, and frankly, he's a lot better than we are. (laughs) And so you might be left with that impression, but here comes Paul, and who said that in Ephesians 5, says, I want to give you another picture, and it's the picture of the Son and the Father, one God, three in one, forever and ever, equal in glory, and that's what your marriage is like. And in that equality, these roles emerge, just as you see the son submitting to the father. And, he, and now he says, wives, headship is like that. And so we have this remarkable equality. That, that right there is, was a, a worldview bomb in the first century. Like We take that for granted. That's an extraordinary thing for anybody to say in the first century. And, and the fact that we take it for granted means that we are living in the impact crater of that verse. That's just normal to us. <laughs> but let it sink in the wonder of it, this, equ- this equality and yet roles at the same time. And so we, can, so we can keep going and we can see what Paul's doing here in, in light of that. Uh, so when we get to verse 7, you know, read verse 7 in light of verse 3 and in light of the rest of the Bible. And Paul says in verse 7, A man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. You know, Paul is not contradicting Genesis there. Genesis 1 that says male and female created in the image of God together. He's not somehow contradicting that. Remember, you use what's clear to help you understand what's not. Uh, And he's also not, let me clear this up, Paul's also not being a misogynist here, relegating women to some lesser secondary glory. It wasn't what he was doing in verse 3. It's not what he's doing in verse 7. And far from it. In fact, it's it's almost the opposite. Uh, Here's, again, the ESV study Bible. Here's what it says about this verse. 
It says, Paul probably uses glory in the sense of one who shows the excellence of. And Paul argues that a woman, by the excellence of her being, also shows how excellent man is since she was taken out of man at the beginning. You see, it's, it's clear in Genesis 1 and 2 that humanity, men and women together, are made in God's image, and together they are the capstone of creation. But what Paul is doing here is he unpacks that a little further down to the, the order in Genesis 2 of man created and then woman taken out of man. And the point is that woman being last really is the final flourish on God's creation. Uh, that she, that she, she's the, the, the last little cherry on top of glory on this Sunday of glory. And she's, she's God's finally now at last very good. <laughs> to which all the ladies said amen. <laughs> and all of that equality is affirmed by Paul in verse 11. It's in verse 11. So this is not him, Paul changing, changing tacks here and balancing something out. Equality of glory and dignity and worth is expressed in mutual dependence. He says, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. It's like, he's like, all right, back in Genesis, it was the man first, now the woman. And ever since then, every man has come from woman. And all things are from God. And so, so you have, even in this text that seems at first read-through to be like, what is he saying about women? He's saying some remarkable, extraordinary, glorious things about women in this text. The second thing that we can see and we can take home here is that in that equality, you can go to the next slide here, God has ordained roles for men and women in certain contexts. Because that's also clear here in the text. What, what exactly is the role of the head coverings and stuff in, the, cultural, in, in the, the culture of that time? And what that has to do for us is unclear. But one of the things that is clear is that, is that Paul does see this equality playing out in certain contexts in roles. That out of this interdependency, mutuality, equality, themes of headship and submission emerge. And so Paul here is, speaks of marriage and the roles of headship and submission between husbands and wives as they join that Trinitarian dance. And I think what he's saying is one of the ways that gets worked out is in the culturally appropriate ways that you interact with each other in the world and what you wear. Like, so it's like, work that out. But it's clear that there's a headship and submission role here in marriage. And elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, that picture of in the nuclear family we also see is echoed in the church family, in God's ordering of certain roles like pastor. And we're, we're going to actually talk about that more over the next two weeks. I'll come, come back to that. Uh, actually, I'll talk about that now. Um, <laughs> one of the things that you, that you may have noticed in how we have walked through 1 Corinthians uh, that there has been a sort of method to our madness. <laughs> that, hey, that's Shakespeare. <laughs> that, so this method to our madness has been, um, has been we working through 1 Corinthians, and occasionally we'll come to a topic where, like, we need to 
we need to dig into that a little bit more. And so we pause and we do a week or two or whatever on that topic. And so back in March, we were in chapter three and we paused for a week to say, hey, in light of this, there's some things about, about the danger of Christian nationalism that we should know about and be on guard against. And, in, and then later, uh, when we got to chapter six and Paul addressed, mentions homosexuality, we, we paused and said, stop, let's do an extra message on this to unpack this. We did the same thing with marriage and divorce in chapter 7. We did the same thing about a month or two ago um, as Paul in chapters 8 and 9 um, gives some examples of how Christian freedom and love and conscience and how to disagree with one another. We paused for two weeks, unpacked that. Well, we come to this again. We're going to do this again. We're going to, that what, the things that Paul mentions here and the questions raised about men and women and roles we think are important to talk about, to, to unpack. Because in, in fact, uh, as pastors, this is an issue that we've, been, that we've been studying, we've been looking at again, saying, is our, does our practice fully line up with what the Bible says? And so, so we have this text here today, and Don is gonna come back the next two weeks and do a two-part message or you know, two messages on men's and women's roles in the Bible, and specifically in the church and in the family. And so I'm not going to say much more about that today because I don't want to steal Don's thunder. So <laughs> uh, come back next week. Um, but one thing that maybe is worth clarifying here is that through this whole passage, Paul is talking to husbands and wives. And so these roles of headship and submission are not universally applicable. Uh, Paul's speaking to husbands and wives in the context of the church. And so there's no indication in the Bible that this Trinitarian dance that God invites his covenant people into applies universally in every male-female dynamic. It's not like all men have authority over all women or that all women should submit to all men. And because in fact, like, no, that would distort that Trinitarian picture that God intends for the marriage relationship to be. And so, you know, this might help us some clarifications. In the workplace, women can, women should be a boss, be, be the boss. Men can be employees. Women can be elected to positions of government authority. Women can lead and men can follow. But in this family, and in this church family, God says to his people, men and women, he says, join this dance. So that in these two institutions, people can see some of what I'm like. And one more thing to point out in this text that may seem obvious, but has profound implications. God pours out spiritual gifts on both men and women. This is the, the next slide here. God pours out spiritual gifts on men and women. You notice this in, in verse 5. So again, he's talking about how husbands and wives should relate to one another in the context of the church, the, the, the local church. And, and he says in giving some head covering instructions, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Do you hear the implication there? Wives, pray and prophesy. 
the, the, the expectation, the implication is that women in the church were praying and were prophesying. And he's just given some kind of, all right, in light of some of this marriage stuff, in light of how the church works, here's how to, here's how to navigate that. He says, women, pray, prophesy. He gives, so Paul gives guidance of what the culturally appropriate usage of spiritual gifts in the church looks like. But don't miss that implication that God pours out gifts by his spirit to his people, both men and women. In fact, you can see in Acts here on the screen, in Acts on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes the prophet Joel to say that this is a key feature of the new covenant that God is making with his people through Christ. Acts 2.17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And later in chapter 12 of Corinthians, we'll get there in a couple weeks, Paul says that the manifestation of the spirit, these gifts of the spirit are given to each believer for the common good. There are no spiritual gifts that God withholds from one gender or another. There are roles that he establishes in the church and in the family of saying, do this, but God pours out gifts on his children. And so, for example, the role of pastor or elder in the church, as Don's going to lay out in the next two weeks, uh, the New Testament seems to pretty clearly affirm that that's a role for, that God would call men to in the church. But I have known women with the spiritual gift of shepherding. Women can have the spiritual gift of leadership. Women can have the gift of teaching. Women should exercise those gifts for the good of the church. Otherwise, you're disobeying 1 Corinthians 12, 7. And so Paul here assumes, he just assumes, of course women will be praying and prophesying in the church. Here's how to do it in a culturally appropriate way that honors those roles. And so, so, so like I said, as pastors, we've been studying at this issue because in realizing that, we want, we, we want to make sure, like, we want to make sure that our practice is lined up with God's word. Because that, that's, that's the foundational commitment here. Jesus is the chief shepherd of this church, and his word is final. And so that requires going back every once in a while to be like, let's look at this again. Let's look at this again. Um, and so, we're, so Don is going to be sharing more about men's and women's roles in the next two weeks. We're going to have a Grace at the Table panel in two weeks, I think, on that men's and women's roles in the church and in the, and in the family. Um, but w one thing, this, this is, a, I think, a relatively little change that you might have noticed, you might have noticed this today. Did you notice that Christy was leading worship? If you've been around here for a long time, you know that we didn't used to do that. But here's the thing. If women are supposed to pray in church, and women are supposed to prophesy in church, and women are supposed to use their gifts in church, can a woman do that right here? Why not? Because that's really what Christy's, what Christy's doing. Is she's, she's working with the pastors, coming up with the song, song list. She was checking about me for something she wants to do next time. And, um, and, 
and I mean, we were all so blessed this morning. You can see Christy has the gift of worship, of, of the, her heart of worship, and the way that she approaches that is such a gift to this church. And so, that, so, so that's actually a, a change that we're like, you, you know what, we're actually out of step with how the New Testament actually portrays men's and women's gifting and roles in, in the church. Uh, and so we had intended to do a more comprehensive teaching of that and then say, and now Christy's going to be a worship leader. Um, but because of, well, geez, because of the pandemic, because of holes in the schedule, because, you know, we, we, we had to kind of do that, do that early. But you might have picked up on that and said, hey, huh, well, this is why. This is why. So if you have questions about that, come like the next two, like talk to us. Come next two weeks, listen to how Don lays, lays this out and grace the table panel discussion. I would love to dialogue with the church about, about those kinds of things. But just here, here it is. Women do these things in church. So, so if I can have the, the worship team, if I can have Christy and the worship team, come on, come on up. Um, you know, there's these, these takeaways, what we can see about what Paul says about women and roles and, and how that functions in the church. But I'd like to push us back to kind of a, a bigger idea, a, a, a bigger idea to, to take away and it's, it's this, it's that even in the most challenging passages of Scripture, God intends good for us. God has good things to say to us, his people. He loves us. And Jesus has rescued us so that we would know him. And so we don't want to shrink away from declaring the whole counsel of God. We want to preach the hard passages. And let's just resolve as a church to lean in to this book, to lean into the hard passages even, to say, God, I want to know your thoughts and I want to know you because we know that there's good for us there. So let's press in. If we could stand, I want to pray for us. Lord, this is your perfect word, challenging sometimes to be sure how it challenges us and it stretches us. But Lord, you have, you have proven in who you are, how you've revealed yourself, and in sending your son, you have proven that all of your intentions for us are good. And so, Lord, help us to submit to your word. Help us to love your word and obey your word and press further in to know your word and to know your heart. Speak, O oh Lord. Speak to us. Lord, we want to listen and obey and follow. In Jesus' name.